welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we're going to welcome back to the program Dr. Jeffrey Long. He's a near-death experience researcher, the best in the world. He's going to talk about his book, God and the Afterlife. We got such a tremendous response from our show last year called The Death Show. That was the show that was 11 hours long, featured 31 interviews, and we just got a tremendous positive response. We're so thankful for it, and a lot of people requested that we bring back Dr. Jeffrey Long. So we did. Thank you for your suggestions, and let us begin tonight's program. Welcoming back to the program is Dr. Jeffrey Long. He's a radiation oncologist at home in Louisiana. He's appeared on NBC's Today Show, ABC World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, The O'Reilly Factor, The Learning Channel, all major TV stations. He's also served on the board of directors for the International Association for Near-Death Studies and established the nonprofit Near-Death Experience Research Foundation and the NDREF website. You can learn more about him by going to his website, which is ndref.org. Dr. Long is also author of the new book, God and the Afterlife. Dr. Long, welcome back to the program. Great pleasure to have you back with us, sir. It is a sincere pleasure to be here. Yes, the last time you were on the program, we were in the midst of a battle with the Atheist <laughs> Foundations. And I mean, the gentleman kept on saying he was going to quit his job. He's like, I'm going to quit my job if you can show me evidence. And coincidentally, I saw his resume on Monster, so obviously you proved him. Uh, That's one of my favorite uh, debates with atheists of all time. I, I, I encourage listeners to look at that. If it's still linked, I assume it yes. was awesome. Yes. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Now, your new book, it is the largest near-death experience study ever conducted. So congratulations to you to pulling that off. And just to give our listeners a background about this, Dr. Long has not interviewed one person or two people. He's has studied over 4,000 people with near-death experiences. Of all the people that you've studied, are there any cases in your mind that stand out as particularly profound? You know, I would emphasize that every near-death experience that's ever been shared with us is profound, meaningful, okay. and significant. But if I had to pick one, I'd have to point to Vicki, a lady who was born totally blind. Vision is unknown and unknowable to people born totally blind. And yet Vicki, when she was in her early 20s, had a severe auto accident, had a near-death experience, uh, highly visual and that is absolutely beyond any medical explanation. That certainly stuck out in my mind as being one of the most remarkable near-death experiences of them all. Okay, so what are, was she able to gain any of her sight back upon her return? Oh, absolutely not. She was yeah. born blind. She had a stunningly visual near-death experience, and then when she returned to her body at the end of her near-death experience, she uh, was, as she was before, blind uh, I mean, totally blind, in which vision is unknown and unknowable. She just had that b brief episode during her life, during her near-death experience. In fact, the first time she ever saw herself was when she had what's called an out-of-body experience, her consciousness above her body. My goodness. Saw her body lying on a gurney in the emergency room, and she was startled because vision was so unfamiliar to her. When she finally calmed down, she realized that was her body down below. Okay. And... Have there ever been 
any near-death experiences that stuck out in your mind where a person went to a very dark place where they went to hell? You're like, oh my goodness, you know what? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hellish near-death experiences are rare. I want to emphasize they're one percent in my series, where people are either aware of or actually involved with in a hellish realm. Uh, near-death experiences don't seem to be due to the near-death experiencer being an especially good person or an especially bad person. We really can't predict why or how that happens, but uh, these near-death experiences, some of the most frightening material that I've ever read in my life, Ryan, is not fiction. It's reality. It's what these people describe when they encountered these hellish realms. And when you're talking to them about this, and you, you focus on the ones that did have it, would they did they feel that it was part of uh, the the reality was a, was something of their own making, or was that something that was kind of being thrusted upon them that they were experiencing the reality of a creation that was not of their own making? Well, wow, that's a great question. Uh, all near death experiences, both the typical pleasant as well as the hellish ones, essentially never come away with the impression of like, wow, this was a like a dream where it was sort of a concoction of my subconscious or mm-hmm. Or a, uh, an experience I created, and particularly with the hellish experiences, uh, they they don't really come away thinking, "Gosh, this is something I thought of of my deep, darkest corners of my subconscious." Uh, the good news is, after they learn and grow from what happened in their near-death experience, they often say it's one of the most positive, positively transforming experiences of their life, and they can be much more loving, happy people. In fact, interestingly, the significant majority of people that that even have these hellish near-death experiences ultimately come to the conclusion that it was one of the most positive experiences of their life from what they learned. Uh, and they, like other near-death experiencers, grow not to fear death, not fear that they will be in that permanent, inviolable, hellish realm, but that this was just something that they needed to learn to best live their earthly life. All right. Of the 26 cases of people that went to hell that you studied, did you find a majority of them became involved with some kind of faith or spirituality or even organized religion afterwards? And I guess the two-part question is that did they say in any which way, shape, or form that they were driven with any type of fear to become more spiritual or become more involved in the organized religion because they didn't want to ever even ponder the notion of going back to that place? Yeah, I don't believe, and, and I have to look at the original data source to see about their religious beliefs. I don't believe they had any different religious affiliation than anybody else. Uh, interestingly, there was not a predisposition of atheists among those that had hellish near-death experiences. Um, but I don't really think that, that their positive changes in their life after the experience were necessarily driven so much uh, from fear the fear that they would be in that irredeemable, hellish realm, so much as it was a learning process. I learned there's an afterlife. I learned there's something more to what's going on here that we see with our earthly life. Uh, And they ultimately come, or at least most of them, come away with believing that it's really love that rules the universe. You see, when you're in a hellish realm, it's very clear, distinctly separate uh, there seems to be a very clear division when near-death experiencers describe this. It's something that is separate and apart from the typical, if you will, heavenly realms. And so when people see this at a distance, they know that it's not a part of heaven. When they're there, they know that it's not a part of the ultimate greater reality that seems to be both our heritage as well as our destiny. Okay. All right, Dr. Long, for this next question, I have to uh, take on the voice of my mom, who's a devout Catholic. I love her very much, but when I was growing up, she said, don't do that. The devil's going to get you. It's the devil talking through you. It's the devil. 
So I knew about the devil a lot in my life. The yeah. devil was always hanging around, doing no good and causing all kinds of chaos and trouble. And I was wondering, uh, the near-death experience cases that you studied, did any of them see the devil? <laughs> Sorry, I love the voice. And did they see a universally dark figure that they could identify yeah. as the Prince of Darkness? Yeah, great question. About 15% have a life review where they see portions are all of their prior life. And if there would be sort of a supernatural evil or a devil figure, one would expect that they would encounter that or review that or become aware of that when they see all or a portion of their prior life. None of the hundreds and hundreds of people that have described a life review ever are aware of or encounter a hellish supernatural evil interacting with them during their earthly life. Now, we've talked about hellish experiences. These are not of this earth. These are not of the physical world that we dwell. This is in the, if you will, the afterlife, a very limited, segmented, sharp, sharply demarcated area. And there, indeed, they've had uh, frightening, malevolent beings. It's, it's uncommon that they call them devil. Devil doesn't even seem to be a, t uh, a word that's commonly used when they are in these hellish realms. But it's still, uh, a few people do describe it as uh, certainly demonic and occasionally devil, but that it, the hellish realm seems to be so grippingly real that it doesn't seem to exactly jibe with the stereotypic view of the devil we have in our earthly life in most cases. All right. Well, most of these hellish realms are described as having fire and brimstone and everything that you read about in you know Catholic school. That is, is it something that you think that is either there naturally, or do you think that maybe the hellish realms that people describe in their afterlife uh, could just be byproducts of what they were taught? Um, whatever beliefs they were taught of believing. Yeah, I see. I do not recall any correlation between religious belief and having an experience of a hellish realm and a near-death experience. Okay. I don't think it's a product of pre-existing belief or what they expected to happen. I'm very clear about that. In fact, I've had near-death experiencers that, that, that thought because of their antisocial life they lived, they would have expected to be in a hellish realm, and they didn't. It was pleasant. So my best guess about what's going on with the hellish realm is that it seems to be something that's especially important for these individuals to either visualize or understand from a distant observation, which is probably about half of them, or to personally experience because that seems to be important for them to face issues they need to face in their earthly life, to grow in the way during the rest of their earthly life that they couldn't have possibly had the opportunity to grow if they had not had this type of experience. So I still think these are a product of a loving God. I think it's just... Uh, in an infinite universe, to say something cannot exist, such as a hellish realm, is probably foolish. I think we're in a universe of all possibilities and all possible choices. And I think, uh, for example, in the afterlife, that some people, as with Earth, make a, a series of very poor choices um, and ultimately end up in realms uh, such as hellish realms. I think it's important to note in near-death experiences, uh, many near-death—I've studied hundreds of near-death experiences that encountered God, not once, not ever, have I encountered a near-death experience where God uh, sentenced or condemned or sent somebody to a permanent, irrevocable, hellish realm. I've just not seen that. Have you ever gotten the impression that when you're talking to people who've you know, left their bodies and gone to this place, that Earth itself could be a, a hellish realm? I mean, if you think about the nature of our reality, um, you know, we're yeah. apparently we're, we're infinite beings, but yet we're in a physical body, and the physical body is, you know, could be can can die, and you could have all these ailments, 
and you know people on the planet could put another person in a prison or they could do something horrible to them. It just seems that you know if you're out of the body or the spirit, you can go anywhere, be anything, be infinite, but you're here, you're trapped in this body. So I'm wondering if Earth itself may be a, maybe a hellish realm for souls that are in rehab. Sure. If you read any number of hellish near-death experiences, the difference between our earthly realm and the descriptions of the hellish realms is very, very striking. Earth is not hell. Earth is also not heaven. I've noticed. You've noticed. All your listeners have, too. But I think the best description of Earth is what one near-death experiencer described as the boot camp of our existence. In other words, here we're going to to be apart from our real, eternal uh, spiritual beings apart from our eternal selves. Here we have the challenges that are uh, would be inconceivable in the blissful, loving ap- afterlife. Here we have uh, issues, problems, uh, you know, lack of awareness of what's so obvious in the afterlife, and it it really challenges. But there's a silver lining to our earthly existence, and that is we have the potential to grow, to live, to understand, and, and I think to become even stronger, better developed spiritual beings for the rest of our eternal existence. And that seems to be the pretty consistent theme, if you will, throughout near-death experiences about why you know, on on Earth we would possibly leave heaven and come here. Okay, do you when you're talking to these people and you've done your research on this, do you if you're going to say these if there were two scenarios, one would be we come to earth to evolve our spirits or we come to earth for the sake of experiencing, what of those two choices resonates with you stronger or are both equally relevant? Yeah, I think they're both. Um I think each individual soul's got their own reason for coming to earth. Um, it could be experience, it could be to experience an existence that is would be inconceivable in the blissful afterlife where there's an uh, overwhelming sense of love and feeling and connection. So, it, you know, it could just simply to be to have that experience, which helps them, if you will, from a knowledge point of view. Others, it seems to be learning lessons. In fact, the, we've asked very directly in a survey question recently about did you have any information during your near-death experience about the meaning and purpose of our earthly life. And if you wanted to shake out the literally hundreds of responses to that question, it would come out that our earthly purpose here seems to revolve around lessons, and particularly lessons about love. And interestingly, family relationships are extremely important or or special close relationships that we have as we learn those special lessons in the environment of our earthly life that apparently we couldn't learn or learn as well in the afterlife. So you want to get down to a real quick and dirty discussion about why we're here, it seems to be lessons, lessons about love lessons as well love. as the experiences. Uh-huh. Right, um, have you ever talked to numbers of souls that purposely came into the life to live in America? And I'm, I'm asking this because I'm wondering if you look at the political climate right now, you look where the country is yeah. right now, I'm just wondering if they came here to experience mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, well, uh, given the, the uh, essential perfection of the afterlife, there's one thing you can say about Earth that the kindest word would be mediocrity. Um, that's blatantly obvious to all of us in our current political climate. Uh, mediocracy, again, being one of the kinder words I can think of. I think that's, you know, Earth ain't heaven. I, I learned that a long time ago, and I think it, it's part of what, you know, we all need to do individually and collectively. I think it's sort of like a call here to fight against that mediocrity. I mean, we're here to to learn, to you know, be fair and reasonable, live our lives with integrity, with honesty here, and I hope 
neither you, me, or any of the listeners to this show ever are complacent in living their earthly lives with mediocrity. We really need to rise above that, I think, if we're really going to learn all that we need to learn here as part of our earthly life. Okay. In the beginning of the book, you talk about, and I appreciate that you identify 12 different common things. You identify what happened uh-huh. to the person right. when they died. And I'll, I'll go through a couple of them just to, to give our listeners an idea. First one is you have an out-of-body experience. You have heightened senses. You pass through a, a tunnel of light, and you have some near-death experiences. Please describe some of the other commonalities of things that happen to people when they initially die. Oh, sure. So, you, as you said, often the first thing, uh, out-of-body experience where consciousness is out of the body, uh, they may, may pass into or through a tunnel, and they then may encounter a mystical, unearthly light at the end of the tunnel. In this unearthly, often called heavenly realm, they may have a life review where they see all or a portion of their prior life. In this unearthly realm, they're having overwhelmingly strong, unearthly feelings of, and the two most common words used, peace and love. While in this realm, they may encounter deceased relatives, uh, friends. These are joyous reunions. They essentially always have a sense of alteration in time or space. They essentially never say that time exists. Uh, they may learn special knowledge near the end of the experience. They may encounter what we call a boundary or a barrier. It could be a stream, creek, chasm, whatever. But at that point in time, they often have to make a decision with other beings about whether they're going to stay in that blissful heavenly realm or return to their earthly body and fight to recover from what nearly killed them. Okay. And the near-death review or the life review have you ever found anyone that describes that as a uh, as a challenging experience? And also, have you ever uh, talked to anyone who said that uh, the reason why there could be ghosts around is that maybe they're afraid to experience that? They're afraid of what's going to happen or what they're going to learn about themselves? Yeah, that's interesting. The um, life review, as, as we've discussed, you can see a portion or even all of their prior life. And by the way... That shows the tremendous acceleration of consciousness that occurs during these experiences. I mean, imagine recalling years and more typically decades of your prior mm-hmm. life in a matter of minutes that you're unconscious or clinically dead. Now, it, it's an interesting concept, and I've speculated on this, about whether or not this could help explain ghosts. I do have to say, in, in the life review, again, encountering hundreds of life reviews, I have yet to see anybody describe a ghost, awareness or presence of a ghost during their earthly life. Mm-hmm during a life review. That doesn't mean it, it's not there. It just means that they're not describing it. But, you know, certainly inter- what we what we don't know about near-death experiences far exceeds what we do know. So the possibility certainly is there that, you know, those that are unwilling or afraid to go to the other side may lurk here for whatever reason in their earthly life and may be entities that are popularly known as ghosts. That's certainly within the realm of possibility. Okay. And I, some of these accounts in your book, again, I want to remind everyone in the book that we're discussing about God and the afterlife, and to also remind everyone of Dr. Long's website, Dr. Long's website, ndref.org. The visualizations are, are amazing. You're talking to people and they're saying, I, I see these beautiful clouds, I'm having these intensive visualizations, I'm having all these sensations. And if this is a hypothetical question, but 
to generate that much energy to produce that much sensation, how much energy do you think it would need to be produced on Earth in order for a person to experience the sensations that the way that people are describing when they're having these near-death experiences? Oh, wow, that's a great question. And I think that helps validate near-death experiences because what they describe is literally unearthly. Their feelings of love and peace unearthly. The light beyond anything they've known in their earthly life. I've had a near-death experiencer say the light they encountered was like a million times a million times as bright as the sun, and yet it never hurts their eyes to to see it. Uh, you know, other things, the, the landscapes, the, the colors that don't exist on Earth, all of this would require an energy. I mean, if you and I sat down and tried to think about this, conceptualize about it, write it, what they're describing in near-death experiences is completely off the scale in terms of energy, uh, visualization, descriptions, reality that they've encountered. I mean, it's far beyond their earthly life, and uh, certainly the amount of energy would just literally be off the scale. Wow. And of all the people you've studied that have had near-death experiences, what percentage of them said, proof beyond positive, that God exists? And the ones that did say that, how would they describe God? It's in the ballpark of about 5 to 7% of near-death experiences, at a minimum, describe either an awareness of God during their near-death experience or actually describe an encounter with God. And again, these are not conceptualizations developed later. This is straight from what happened to them while they were unconscious or clinically dead when they shouldn't have any conscious experience, and yet here they are experiencing God when any memory should be impossible. God is variably described in near-death experiences, not a huge surprise, given that we're typically encountering God in an unearthly, heavenly realm. It's not physical. It's not three-dimensional. So God is most often described as being associated with light, a beautiful, mystical, unearthly light. However, God can be described as a whole host of different things, humanoid, non-humanoid. In fact, we have uh, several near-death experiencers that shared with us that God made it clear to them that God was assuming a shape that they felt they'd be comfortable with. And other spiritual beings have adopted shapes or even asked them what appearance they would like them to take so that they would be comfortable and accepting of what they encounter during their near-death experience. Okay. At any point in time when you're talking to people who had near-death experiences, did you find any of them described God as a separate being from them that was just very powerful, but it was unique in its own existence, or did you ever see them describe God as part of themselves, but was the condensed collective consciousness of all that is and all that ever will be? Yeah, great question. Answer yep. both. Uh, unequivocally, people describe, in a sense, that, and again, we're in an unearthly, heavenly realm, so all the, if you will, rules that we know in our earthly life don't really apply there, but they can describe God as a very discreet uh, entity, uh, creator, source of knowledge, light. Uh, typically, the most common language they use, profoundly, deeply loving. God seems to know who they are, everything about them, and still loves them unconditionally. So there, while there seems to be that sort of separate entity, also the second most common thing beside God's loving nature is the concept that we really are, you, me, and every one of our listeners are in reality in that heavenly realm connected, united, one with God. Obviously, we're not aware of that during our earthly life, but in the unearthly life, there seems to be that very strong sense of connection and oneness. Now, I 
kind of puzzled about that myself. I was so startled at how many near-death experiencers described that until one day I perused over to the dictionary and looked up the very dictionary definition of love. And the prominent concept of love in a dictionary is connection. Think about that. God's love is so unearthly, so profound, that that connection that we have with God seems to be manifest in the afterlife in heaven as a unity or a oneness. That's a wow. Why isn't God's love seen more in a physical realm or in the realm that we live in? Because you know, think of it this way. We, you know, we're in physical bodies. We have the capability of giving someone a hug. We have the capability of wiping away someone's tears. We have the capability of writing, speaking, exploring all aspects of our physical um, bodies to, to express love. I just, do you have any particular reason or reasons why we don't see more love in this world? You know, that's a great question. When I was done writing the book, my next line of thinking was, where is God in the world that we live in? How do we know God? How can we come to understand God in our earthly lives? I mean, you and I don't want to have a near-death experience necessarily and nearly no. die. So how, how can we come to know that? And The way I'm thinking about it at this point in time is that if there's one thing clear from near-death experiences is that God is everywhere. So I think you can find God in a whole host of things. I think you can find God in the uh, some of the greatest beauty of earth, the art, the uh, beauty of nature. I think you can find God in the love of uh, people, pets, uh, you know, love of things. I think there's so much that, if you will, uh, extrapolating from the unearthly realm, that we don't see in that majesty in our earthly life, but still is a manifestation of God. Love of ourselves, love of other people, uh, beauty, knowledge, creation, all of those, if you will, are a celebration of our oneness with God, of, of what God is really all about. And I think each and every one of those different ways of, of living our earthly life can help us to learn a little something about God and help come understand that, and if you will, perhaps in some very real way, have that remembrance of who we really are and that connection with God. Did you ever interview someone who either came away from near-death experiencing, near-death experience not believing in God or actually being completely unimpressed with God? Cause the uh, only per- yeah, that's really? <laughs> I, I yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yet, uh, of anybody that was aware of or encountered God, nope, haven't had anybody be unimpressed. <laughs> really? If they, if they were aware of or encountered God with a near-death experience, all those hundreds and hundreds were impressed. Now, there's certainly got people that have near-death experiences that were not aware of God, did not account, encounter God, and they may come back and literally ask, well, where was God? And, you know, may go on questioning whether God exists. But again, no two near-death experiences are the same, and I guess that was something they needed to live their earthly life, to explore that question, wrestle with it, and come to understand the answer to that in their own way, in their own time, as they live their earthly life. But God and near-death experiences, you, you want to pick, you could pick many words, but one of them would certainly be impressive. Okay. Oh, that was awesome. When it comes to heaven, when it comes to hell, are heaven and hell actual byproducts of human nature? Are heaven or heaven and hell um, created by human beings in order for them to kind of cope with the reality of where they are? Or do heaven and hell, according to people who've had near-death experiences, exist regardless of whether or not human beings give them any um, thought? Yeah, you kind of got that turned around there. I think human beings exist as a result of the loving creation in heaven. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, I think there's no question about that. That's why we're all here. I think in the absence of loving creation, uh, unity, all God, if you will, uh, you know, that being the, the ultimate spirit of the universe, that's why we're here. It's had that creation that's created an environment where we can all come and, and live this in earthly life. Uh, I think it's important for everybody to realize that while living our earthly life seems to be a vastly long time, you know, seemingly unending for many of us, especially if you have drudgery or difficult lives, please understand that if you can accept the concept that we are really eternal beings, and we really are, the finite time that we live our earthly life is the tiniest slice of our real eternal beings. While life may be difficult, and it is difficult, it's difficult for all of us, we're here to learn, and it is the, the absolute most minuscule, unimaginably small slice of who we really are as eternal beings. So live life the best you can would seem to be the overriding message from near-death experiences, and, and have that message of humility that we're vastly more, you, me, and every listener, vastly more than what we come to understand in our earthly life. In our physical bodies. So you actually have this really wonderful chapter called Oneness with God, and you talked about people, you know, well, like talking about how they were one with God and how they merged their light with God. And it, I always wonder that why does do people have to consciously shift their attention on the oneness if they already are at the fundamental core part of God? Why 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 do people have to focus on it if they're already there? I mean, is there any reason sure. why they whether well, tends to I guess tends to be to need at least in the physical body and the physical realm to focus your attention on that. Well, and that's a great question. I think one of the reasons that near-death experiencers that are aware of or encounter God write that about their oneness, unity, um, connection, deep connection with God more than a lot of other aspects is because it's so unexpected. I mean, shoot, when I started doing this research, I, I would have said, I'm sure not one or connected a part of God, and I'm sure the great majority of near-death experiencers feel the same way. I mean, the unity, oneness with God that we all have is certainly not a common thought in conventional Western religious thinking. So I think it's a huge surprise to them. It's a, it's a huge, it's a mega wow. I mean, who would have thought that's amazing? And so I think that is so dramatic and, and interesting, and I think it really literally helps define who they are as a being. I mean, they are, as a, as a near-death experiencer, as a human being, far more than they ever would have conceived of. They have that connection, that part of God, that prior to their near-death experience in their earthly life, they simply were not aware of. So I think that's I think the importance of it, as well as the unexpectedness of it, is why they talk about it so much. Okay, and chapter seven of the book talks about insight and revelation, and people learn about these profound aspects of themselves, and they learn about the profound aspects of humanity. In your studies, did you find that some people come back? with the gift of prophecy? And if so, are there any common predictions that people are talking about for not only yeah. America, but for Earth in general? Yeah, great question. Yeah. We asked specifically d if they became aware of any future events. And the answer is typically, well, yes and no. Interestingly, the one most consistent future event that people are aware of is if they will have children in the future and what their gender will be and how many. In you know, some dozen, several dozen near-death experiences that have described that future awareness, I've never known them to be wrong. And, and this is like even the children had this awareness, and it's like they had no idea or even concept or even conceptualized 
uh, about their future childbearing and having kids, and yet they do. So that's one thing that is almost invariable, well, at least in my experience, invariably accurate. Uh, other things such as what's going to happen in the near future on Earth, I've looked very carefully for that, and it doesn't seem to be anything consistent, anything you can really hang your hat on that's going to happen. If there's one lesson I see when I ask that question and explore that concept in near-death experiences is that it does not seem that the future is fixed. It seems that it can be modified and perhaps to a very significant degree by the choices we make individually and collectively as human beings. And so there is no fate that's fixed. Uh, it seems to be fluid. It seems to be a product of choices. And so I don't really know that anybody even has the ability to make any future predictions that I would believe. And I've looked, and gosh, I've studied dozens and dozens of these. So uh, I think that's really the bottom line. We just really don't know the future. That's that's. Uh, and even if the future is to some degree fixed, I think that's a knowledge that we're just not simply given in our earthly life, even during near-death experiences. Okay, this is a lot of talk lately. I mean, let's see if you just follow some aspects of me. It looks like there's going to be another war that's going to break out, <laughs> World yeah. War Three or yeah. something. Don't, I don't know. Don't, yeah, don't see any of that. That's the good thing. Don't, don't, okay. don't, don't see World War Three. Don't see the zombie op- apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank goodness for that. So, I would love peace I, to break out. I would love somebody to come back. Listen, be careful. Get ready. Peace is going to break out. One soon. of the more dramatic near-death experiences was described by a person who became aware of a multitude of possible future awareness, uh, future directions, and huh. became aware that it was indeed a, a series of choices that would lead to that. And between the two extremes of the worst possible outcome for uh, the future of the Earth and the best possible outcome for the future of the Earth was astounding. Wow! Well, can you please describe what they saw? I would love, be curious to know what, what, were, what were the what was the actually. Um, let's go uh, with the sure. the negative first, and we'll go to the positive after. Yeah, when I when I heard and was aware of that, I knew immediately. We were with a group. We had a pretty good sized group, and I knew uh, from studying near death experiences that I was not going to give light of day to the worst possible outcome. I knew that that was not what we needed to be thinking about or focused on. So I asked him, what is the best possible outcome for humanity? Because that's the kind of thing that I think he needed to share to the group and that we all needed to be thinking about and focused on and hopefully help manifest. So the future would be just, it's interesting, it's not technology-driven, it's love-driven. In fact, it's relatively uh, hypo-technological in a real way. People lived more simplistically and yet... There seemed to be that profound love, healing, unity, and uh, basically awareness of who we are as human beings and our spiritual connection with the divine. And that seemed to be an ultimate, uh, of course, obvious, uh, tr- tremendous peace and, and, and hum- humanity all uh, united in these pursuits. That seemed to be the ultimate outcome of humanity. Uh, I would, did not ask him deliberately about the worst possible outcome. Yeah, I would have been, oh, uh, he he astu- asserted that that existed. Uh, I just simply said it was, I think, far more interesting to me and certainly far more important to say what could really happen, what's the best possible outcome, and that's what he discussed. Okay. In the course of human history, at least if you look at religion, there's always one or more figures that are considered the enlightened beings. They're the one figure that, that comes to earth that seems to have uh, one or two legs up on everyone else, and they have profound insight. And then sometimes they're worshipped, like Jesus is, is worshipped. And uh-huh. do those people that come here, uh, that are considered above everyone else, are they really, theoretically speaking, um, 
supreme beings or higher beings coming to lead other aspects of humanity there, or is it an illusion? Is an illusion? Is it an illusion to think that someone else could be higher than us when we all come from the same place of origin? Wow, that's interesting. Um, I have to address direct. Yes, the religious beings are described in near-death experiences and fairly regularly. I would I would emphasize right off the bat that at no point during a near-death experience do they either convey themselves as, quote, above, unquote, those of us in our earthly life. What you generally see when they interact with those having near-death experiences is the number one thing they, that near-death experiencers describe is their compassion, their love, their acceptance. Uh, they feel totally accepted, known for who they are, loved for who they are completely and unconditionally. Uh, profoundly, does that sound like somebody, quote, above, unquote? No. This sounds like somebody that really wants to uh, manifest their love towards the person having the near-death experience. There may be beautiful dialogues, but at no point do they manifest this one-upness of spiritual beings by telling them, hey, here's great insights you didn't know. Here's how I want you to go build an ark. I mean, their really goal in this seems to be to share the love, to be there with that person, uh, to dialogue as they would like to dialogue, uh, to, to answer their questions, and they often do. And very often these spiritual religious beings may be involved in decisions about their return to earthly life. Uh, there, there's one thing that is dramatic with these religious beings. At no point, I mean, they're certainly obviously, in a sense, above us in that they are far more profoundly loving than we could possibly be on earth, and they're recognized even in the afterlife as being vastly more loving uh, even than the other spiritual beings in the afterlife, which are themselves unearthly in their ability to love. Uh, it seems to be, I mean, it's an incredibly positive thing when I read these accounts in near-death experiences that there are those very, very special beings that I expect we'll all be able to have an encounter with in the afterlife. And to say it's good is a radical understatement. To say that, you know, these are profound, loving, exceptional, beautiful beings is in uh, something I very much look forward to interacting with in the afterlife is much more accurate. And Dr. Long, the final question we have for you, sir, is if you were to say or think of maybe a couple of the most profound insights that you learned or got out of the study prior to writing it, what would you say would be those insights? And what what did you learn or garner that maybe surprised you that you didn't know or weren't aware of prior to writing your book? Yeah, the the concept that there is a reality of an afterlife based on evidence that stood the test of time. Uh, As you know full well, atheists have debated it and a whole variety of others and have simply not been able to refute the lines of evidence that led to my conclusion that there's an afterlife. Same thing with the reality of God. That's been out there. Uh, Vast numbers of people have been aware of my recent writing on that. It stands unrefuted. Uh, this seems to be now based on evidence in a way that I would have not conceived before I wrote this book, that there really is a God. Uh, and interestingly, as an near-death experience researcher, me and my colleagues often wondered about why some people had near-death experiences and why most people don't. At a close brush with death, only about 10 to 20% have a near-death experience. We had one near-death experiencer ask God directly, why me? Why was I chosen for this near-death experience? And God's answer, I think, was profound and directly addressed the question I'd had and others had as a researcher and answered a lot of other questions about life. God's response was, love falls on everyone equally. This is what you needed to live your earthly life. Wow. That's amazing. 
Yeah. Dr. Jeffrey <laughs> Dr. Jeffrey Long. It was a 40-minute interview. It went by in 30 seconds. Uh, I could just talk to you for so much longer. Dr. Jeffrey Long, author of the book God and the Afterlife. You can pick it up on his website, and that's nderf.org. And I'm telling you, I read this book. Well done. It has an incredible amount of positive reviews. Highly, highly recommend you go out and buy it. Dr. Long, thank you so much for being with us today, sir. Always a pleasure. What a great pleasure. Fantastic interview. Appreciate your kind and expert discussion today. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Long, incredible guest. Love having him on. We'll definitely have him back on soon. Special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Sellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, Please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. So the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>